Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Be The Church podcast, where we are engaging in conversations that will encourage you to live out your faith in everyday context so that you can be the church. I'm your producer, Isaiah. I'm one of your hosts, Kevin. And I'm your other host, David. Fantastic. And today we are continuing our series talking through some questions from skeptics. This is our first question And last week or last time we went over uh, just a general overview of how to approach these discussions well. So to start off, we're going to just jump right into a recap of why we're doing this. And David, I'll kick it off to you. Why are we doing this skeptic series? Yeah, uh, we we believe that we are actually called to give a defense for our faith. Um, We read that in 1 Peter 3, 15 through 16, when we're told, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And so our desire is just that, to help the church uh, body process and think through many of the questions that are commonly asked to Christians. Um, And we want to, in, in essence, help believers think and also help thinkers believe. Yeah. And and just to maybe add to that, you know, this this podcast is actually a ministry arm of our church. Right. Uh, and so, and we debated back and forth back when we were even talking about creating this, whether it was going to be that, and the elders of the church decided it was going to be that. So, you know, one of the ways that we help encourage, equip, and empower our church is through encouraging them to listen to this this podcast and to process through the questions or doubts that they may have about their own faith and in, right. inwardly and personally, but also who may be people that they are impacting in their lives as well. And so, you know, ideally, right, we want to be able to equip and empower one another to be able to address the heart questions and objections of those who are not in the faith. And so, you know, I think probably the best way to describe this is, you know, as a as a disciple or a follower of Jesus, to be able to live out the implications of 1 Peter chapter 3, I need to have a, a tool belt, and there's going to need to be various tools in that tool belt so as to be able to answer the objections or to be able to give a defense of the faith to somebody. And so hopefully, as we kind of engage in these conversations um, we're not going to be exhaustive. We're not going to be a seminary level. Uh, none of us here right. have a PhD <laughs> in ph- philosophical thought or reasoning. Um, but hopefully, um, we'll at least be able to give some some basic groundwork to uh, be able to defend some of these things. I, I would also just add that it has been my experience most of the time when questions like what we're going to be engaging with 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 skeptics is that most of the people who ask those questions haven't necessarily thought through the implications of their question and haven't necessarily thought through the possibility that there could be a rational answer behind them. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that as everyone, but it has been my experience that oftentimes people, they kind of seek to have like a gotcha moment right. with with you. And when you're able to give a, a rational, reasonable uh, defense for why you hold to the belief system that you hold to, it can kind of disarm the situation. You know, one of the things I like to say to people, if if we're talking through something like this I'll, and they're pushing back and being unreasonable or whatever else, I'll just say, hey, you asked a really, really intelligent question. You're way too smart to continue to hold to this and not actually do the research on this yourself. Yeah. Not, not trying to call them stupid because I don't believe they are. Right. But say, hey, if you're going to, you know, approach people in this way, you need to really, really engage and think through the reality of this. I think David and I would both agree that there are people far more qualified and smarter than us when it comes to this topic, even if it is something he and I are both passionate about. Right. And I think that that's an excellent point because as we talk here, like our goal is not to say like, oh, you know, listen to us and just like hope that, you know, and then share this with the people you're trying to give answers to as much as to say like, you too are not philosophers and 
doctoral students in these things. And But this is a call that all of us have to be able to process through these both internally and externally with ourselves and with others. And that's why we're going through this is to help you guys have some things to just say, not to get people, but to just bring like logical thought to these questions. Um, Now that was a very quick understanding of why we're going through the series. And like I said before, if you do have more questions or want to hear a more in-depth processing through how we approach these conversations, I strongly encourage you to listen to the first episode of the skeptic series. Um, And secondly, like Kevin said, this will not be exhaustive. And if you have further questions, want clarification, uh, want sources or whatever, like feel free to email us at podcast at and we are happy to continue answering and talking through this for uh, any questions you have. Uh, we're not just here trying to do it without like any communication afterwards. Like we're open to that and we'd love that engagement with you guys. So yeah, um, with that, we will hop right into our first question and it is simply, is there convincing evidence for the existence of God? Yeah, and so I am just going to kind of clarify what we are answering, and I think most importantly what we are not answering today. (laughs) Um, Because I I, I do think when you first pose that question, um, and and even I would say even when you, if you like do a simple Google search or or deep dive, right, you'll you'll look up and you'll find like proofs of God. I, I think if you come here and you're like, I'm expecting these three individuals to prove that God is real and exists to me in the next 45 minutes. You're going to be sorely disappointed. Maybe not, but maybe not, but probably, (laughs) but probably. (laughs) Right. I I think in simplest terms, you know, we talked about that in the first episode. We, we want to make our questions very clear and uh, focused so that we can actually answer them appropriately. And so what, we are trying to demonstrate today is that we do believe that there is convincing evidence or convincing reasons um, for human beings to rationally hold the belief that God exists, that God exists. Um, And so that is, that is the question that we are trying to answer. Can a human being rationally hold to the belief that God exists, which I think is a fair question. Right. Um, And I, I think we have, um, Valid, valid answers. Yeah. One of my least favorite, um, I don't know if you'd call it a debate or like a situation to walk into when someone says like, you can't prove the existence of God 100%. And it's like, well, I mean, okay, thanks, but you can't disprove the existence of God. So this isn't getting us anywhere. So yeah. I, I, I like one of my major encouragements in, in situations like that is to, you know, make sure that whenever you're hearing questioning from somebody from a skeptical perspective, that the question's not self-defeating because like I, I would argue that that question, the way I just framed it is, is self-defeating because it's yes. One, there's very, very few things that can be, we can be 100% positive about, you know, sure. like the, the I, I mean, honestly, you can make a philosophical argument about whether it's 100% true that we exist or not. I mean, have you ever seen The Matrix? I I don't think that that's what's going on here. Sure. But, you know, once you start walking down that rabbit trail, it gets really, really difficult. And so what we're trying to do and what we're trying to answer is say, hey, is it reasonable or is there a preponderance of evidence? Is it rational to – rational, not rational. Is it rational to hold to the belief that God exists? And I would say personally, obviously, yes – um, spoiler. I think right. you speak for all three of us. When you <laughs> I, I would, I would say that there are a number of ways to approach answering this question though. Yes. And the way that I would want to start answering this question with somebody is I would actually want to appeal to them the same way that the apostle Paul does in the book of Romans. And I think that's a really good point too, because scripture is part of our tool belt to see the logic in a lot of what is given to us to, you know, have these discussions with people. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I also think I personally find it helpful because if you are able to use scripture 
to help answer a question like this, you're not only displaying that you've thought deeply about the question, but you're also saying that Christians for thousands of years have thought deeply about this question yeah. and had answers to it thousands of years ago. I'm going on a tangent here for a second, but I find that every generation is more arrogant than the previous generation and how intelligent they think they are. Um, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. And they're kind of right. I mean, if you if you really do a deep dive in, in history, there, there are some things and advancements that we have today, um, specifically from a medical science standpoint, that we've probably never seen before. But the vast majority of, of humanity... Um, is not that intellectually advanced compared to even philosophers from a thousand, two thousand, even maybe even twenty five hundred years ago. And so, <laughs> I think it's helpful to look at this and say, "Hey, this isn't just something that that Christians are trying to defend in the year twenty twenty three. This is something that the Apostle Paul was defending back in eighty thirty, eighty forty, eighty fifty, right when he wrote to the Romans. And he makes an appeal on two separate bases. And again, he's just starting with the existence of God. He hasn't even gotten to um, Jesus or the the fundamental truth of it, whether Jesus is the promised Messiah of the Jewish faith. He's just simply arguing for the existence of God. And his first point is an argument of looking to creation as evidence that the world we live in was designed and created. So maybe to put that a different way, to be able to look out on our planet and say, there are signs and symbols here, there's, there's signals here for us to be able to look at and say, hey, there's this evidence that there was a designer behind this. Um, we can look to humans and see that they have a propensity to worship creation. This is because they have exchanged what they suppose what they are supposed to worship god for what god has created creation so this is this is paul's starting argument he says if we look out on the human race we see that the human race no matter what culture what culture you come in what race you grew up in what country or nationality or origin you may come from that the human race has a propensity to worship so if you would look at the egyptians they're a polytheistic religion but most of their their gods that they worship are based upon some aspect of creation. Same for Greek or Roman mythology, same for much of the Nordic mythology of the world. If you look to the Eastern religions, there there is some sort of worship of, of deities that control specific aspects of creation. And so Paul's argument is that human beings for, for thousands and thousands of years have been able to look out over creation and see, hey, this is something more powerful than our than ourselves. This is a power behind us, and therefore they were forced or confronted with that and had to make a response. And Paul's point is, is that most of the human race has chosen, instead of worshiping the God of the Bible as he presupposes, who is the creator of all of this, they've chosen to worship other deities or other forms, ultimately though, Worshiping creation itself. So, you know, if you worshiped Poseidon because you were a sailor, right. you were really worshiping the sea because you wanted to be safe while you were out to sea. All right. Or if you were a farmer, you might worship the god of the sun or the god of the rains, right? Not necessarily because you maybe even had some true affinity and love for that god, but that god, you were utterly dependent upon that god for your sustenance. Right. And so Paul's kind of point here is that human beings worship sure. constantly. If we, from an anthropological or a sociological perspective, look out on societies, we will see that the big problem is trying to figure out okay, human beings worship, what are they supposed to be worshiping? And that's a much mm -hmm. bigger question. Right. But what Paul is ultimately saying here is that, hey, this doesn't discount the significance of maybe the scientific study of creation or biology or chemistry or physics and their role in how we understand the natural world. But however, as we examine creation, those things are tools that would reveal to us how the design works, not the origin of it. 
And so when you get down to it at its, at its most foundational level, right, Paul's first argument is we should be able to look out on the universe and say something created this. And oftentimes we do, we just don't realize it. And we end up worshiping the creation rather than the creator. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's really cool because with my job, I get to record a lot of lectures for a lot of classes. And so I actually got to go on location today and uh, just look at a lot of bugs um, and it was really cool because the instructor uh, was a believer and like is strong in her belief to say, hey, like I can be a like intellectual person that is studying like very in depth on science and see this be a light to creation and, and like that there is a God. And I think it's so beautiful to have those moments and just to see how complex things are uh, and just be encouraged by that for sure. I know that's something that we'll go into much more in depth in another question later in the series, but I think like a little tidbit there right now is. Yeah, awful. absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the, the point that Paul's making is, hey, we can know that God exists by looking at creation or at least reasonably assume that something created all this, that this just sure. didn't come from nothing by accident, by happenstance, that something didn't come from nothing. Right. The second argument he makes it is in Romans chapter two, verses fourteen and fifteen. So he says the first appeal is, "Hey, we can we can know that God exists just simply by creation." And the second way we can do this is by looking at the human race and understanding the role of conscience and morality inside of human beings. Our conscience, according to Paul, is proof that God has written the law of God on our hearts. Now this can be connected with Christian and Jewish thought all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Because at the creation of the universe, God declares as he creates Adam and Eve that he's going to make man in his image and likeness. Meaning that if God is a God of morality and standards, that that image would then be imparted on human beings as they process through this. Um, I prefer, like when we start getting into some of these different arguments, my absolute favorite book on apologetics is Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Uh, I think he was ahead of his time. I think um, part of that is because the United States tends to be, from a cultural perspective, about 50 years behind Western Europe on, on a lot of these things. Yeah. Um, and so a lot of the intellectual questions that, uh, that C.S. Lewis is trying to answer, um, you know, right after World War II, it are things that we're wrestling with in America probably 50, 60 years later. Right. And, and so he wrote Mere Christianity actually as a, as a series of um, radio lectures that then got turned into a book. But when he writes on this topic, one of the first appeals he makes in the first part of the book is to this idea of conscience as being evidence for a moral law, as he calls it. And therefore, if there is a moral law, there's a moral law giver or God. So Lewis says the law of nature, right? This is him. Again, it's a, he uses terms interchangeably for this idea of moral law, but the law of nature is another term that he uses for moral law. And he says that the law of nature is the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. And, and what he means by that is human beings' uh, ability to, to rationalize what they believe is right and wrong is what distinguishes us from other animals in the animal kingdom. And one of the examples he gives is there's nothing instinctual about seeing somebody drowning that you have no personal connection with and choosing to jump into the river and save them. Mm-hmm. You are making a moral judgment on what is the right thing to do here, mm-hmm. not not making some decision based off of, of of instincts, which what is what most of the animal kingdom runs off of, right? And then he uses a, a, a series of metaphors to prove his point. He says all human beings, this is his premise, that all human beings believe and reason this way, meaning that they have morality, they have a conscience. And the fact that human beings reason and intrinsically believe this shows evidence for a moral lawgiver. Now, there is debate on whether that's true. I think that the pushback that people give on whether human beings, you know, if you ever read Lord of the Flies, right? Like that, that's mm-hmm. the, 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 the problem is, is Lord of the Flies is a great fiction novel. It's not reality <laughs> because 
what actually, and what I would actually say that the, the author of Lord of the Flies actually ends up proving is not that there's a lack of morality, but that oftentimes power trumps morality in certain situations, right? So what you see as a, at play in the book Lord of the Flies is power dynamics much more than you see morality driving what's going on with the young boys on, on this island as they're, they're by themselves, right? So Lewis gives two illustrations. Which, oh, yeah, go ahead. Which, by the way, as we're thinking through this question, just because I do think there, there might be some pushback there Especially with, obviously, all, I think all of our positions is that there is objective morality, right? And and that's kind of what Lewis is is getting mm-hmm. to here. I think probably the most common pushback uh, in the present age is that there is no objective morality. Kind of this nat- naturalistic, right? If if left to our own d- devices, I would say the biggest difference from someone holding to what we would we would hold to which is that whether whether the three people on that island believe that murdering each other for food is in their best interest is irrelevant because there is a moral law that yeah. exists whether they agree with it or not yeah. and and therefore a moral law giver where if we take that away and we just say morality is just we've all kind of agreed on what's right. Well, if we were just the three last people on an island and my existence depended on taking your life, my belief system might change if it's not grounded on something outside yeah, of myself. Absolutely. So I think it, it's worth bringing up. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think too, one of the things that I, I'm just like remembering reading that book in high school mm-hmm. and remembering how shocked everyone in my class was at the reality of what happened in that story, no matter what religious background they came from they were shocked at what was going on and what was interesting to me is the book was trying to make a point that everyone in our class disproved because everyone had a different a different belief system for a large part in that in that classroom but they still found what was going on in that book to be morally reprehensible and you know lewis does a actually i think a beautiful job of trying to engage his readers over over their pushback to this by using a couple illustrations. He 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 uses a number of illustrations, and I'm just going to point out a few of them. But he talks basically, he says, the best way to see this is when you see two people engaged over arguments or in conflict with one another. He says, first of all, is that when two people are engaged in a quarrel, there's a very British word, right? <laughs> when two people are engaged in a quarrel, there is almost always an attempt to show the other person that they are wrong and you are right. This means that both people enter into the discussion or the argument with the assumption that there is such a thing as right and wrong. This is why debating and talking with postmodernists just absolutely cracks me up because they want to debate with you that there is no objective morality or objective right and wrong, except for the fact that there is no object, that there is no objective right and wrong. That's the only guiding principle in the universe, right? Just absolutely hilarious to me. But anyway, so what, Lewis is pointing out, though, is that this idea is not merely a social construct because why would multiple different cultures and countries and people groups and nations hold to this same idea? But he says it follows outside of, of social conventions as well, and he gives an example of mathematics. Right? He says a mathematics teacher or a, a country that has a school system may may or may not teach multiplication tables to their children. But anyone that understands the basic rules of mathematics still can solve the truth of multiplying with or without knowing the times tables. And he goes on to say that a a child that's never taught the times tables could actually still discover that a times table could exist because it's an objective truth, Mm. whether they've actually been taught it or not. In the same way, he says, we see this in driving, that in some countries, the country holds that you have to drive on the right side of the road. Other countries demand that you drive on the left side of the road. But people derive that there is a right way to drive. You know, like every time I'm outside of the U.S., I'm like, man, these people are driving like crazy. Yeah. But, but they have conventions and rules that they want you to follow, mm-hmm. meaning that there's, a, that there's a standard that people hold on to, right? And Lewis expands on this and says that this is basically like the, uh, this idea of what he calls insider information, right? And he uses the, the story of, of a home being built in an architect. 
And he says, you can look at a house, so creation, human beings and conscience, and, and, and see things. So if you're looking at a home, like when my wife and I built our home about a year and a half ago, we would go and look at the home. And when you go and look at the house, it tells you something about the builder, you know, standards they have, you know, whatever else. But we would actually get way more information about the builder by actually listening to the builder discuss the home and why and how they chose to build it. He then takes this back to God and he says that if humans are so interested in morality and arguing with one another, then we can be sure that the designer would be. So Lewis's ultimate point is that it's obvious to anyone who has debated with someone over their actions being right or wrong. If one is making an argument that you have done something wrong, then they must have a conception of what right is. And if there is a conception of what right is, there has to be a standard giver of what right is. So, so basically, right, Lewis's point is, is if you ever hold to a standard of truth or something being right, it's then necessary that we believe that there would be a standard giver. That's all, that I just tried to summarize right in two or three sentences his argument. That's that's the argument he's making. And I find it to be compelling. Yeah, no. And, and along those lines, uh, you know, as you were talking about C.S. Lewis, you know, reflecting in World War II time, uh, you know, someone who kind of went on that path and really processed through the logic that, you know, objective truth is part of life um, was referenced in one of my favorite books by Timothy Keller, uh, Encounters with Jesus. Um, and he talks about W.H. Auden. I think that's his last name. <laughs> I, don't, I, think, I think that's how you pronounce it. Um, and he's a, fav- uh, a famous poet. And as World War II began, it really challenged him and why people chose to do and believe what they did, what made the Nazis wrong and the allies right. You know, cause you, you have two people who feel they have very strong truths and they're clashing. And so, you know, who's right, who's wrong and why was their truth, uh, not our truth and caused us to fight over it, you know, especially with such extreme beliefs. Um, and Tim Keller shares this quote from him and it just simply goes like this. I'm going to read it out of the book because that's better. Um, it says, if I am convinced that the highly educated Nazis are wrong and that the highly educated English are right, what is it that validates our values and invalidates theirs? The English intellectuals who now cry to heaven against the evil incarnated in Hitler have no heaven to cry to. The whole trend of liberal thought has been to undermine faith in the absolute. It has tried to make reason the judge. But since life is a changing process, the attempt to find human space for keeping a promise leads to the inevitable conclusion that I can break it whenever I feel it convenient. Either we serve the unconditional or some Hitlerian monster will supply an iron convention to do evil by. And I think that's just, for me, that was really compelling to be like, wow, like how do we know who's right and wrong? And there has to be some greater power out there to help prescribe the objective morals and truths we live by. And for Auden, like that's why he chose to go back to Christ, go back to God uh, because of, just the logic of the day of like the pressures of world war two really bringing about the clash of moral understanding. So. Yeah. I remember a couple months ago being on campus um, with another student uh, inviting people to church and getting into conversations with people. And I met this really sweet young lady who was a, um, a like an environmental science. She was studying to, to, you know, um, work on and replace the mangrove populations that were kind of on the coast of Florida. And so really, really smart gal. Uh, and in this discussion, she kind of revealed to us that she'd grown up going to church some, but she was going to a universalist church now. And so as we continued to talk, uh, she just held a number of postmodern beliefs and, and thoughts. And one of the things I asked her then is is where she was deriving morality from because I, I think that's an important question. Now I know that there are atheists out there that think that's a ridiculous question to ask, but I don't think it is because you you really with a quote like Auden's, you really do have you are reckoned with this that if there's yeah. no standard giver outside of someone with the authority to give that standard, you're in trouble. And, and she gave a very stereotypical answer. She said, "Well, I think 
you know, we live in a, in a republic, or she called it a democracy, but, you know, that's a misunderstanding of American uh, civics, and we can get into a discussion yeah. about that at a different time. Um, but she said, you know, I, I think the human race should be able to decide collectively with that. I said, well, one, right, you're, you're then talking about giving in to the majority, not we're, the minority. We're really good at deciding things collectively. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, is, this was my point. I said, I told her, like, normally I wouldn't do this because, you know, philosophically, you know, an absurdium at Hitler is what it's called. Like, when he, anytime you bring Hitler into a discussion, it's pretty much unfair. But it, the, the reason is, is it, it's true. Mm-hmm. You know, Hitler rose to power through democratic means mm-hmm. in Germany. And the belief system that was held in, in, in many ways was held there because they believed he was right about what he was talking about. Now, I'm not saying that every single person believed in it. You know, some just went along with it for, for their own reasons. But there was an entire group of people that believed what, what he was saying, teaching, and believed. Mm-hmm. Enough to where it was a majority that then caused that to spiral into a conflict that took up the entire continent of Europe and spilled over into Africa and Asia. And so I looked at her and said, is that, is that how you want morality being decided? Because what you're ultimately saying is not that it's collectively decided by being, you're, you're saying it's ultimately decided by who's got the most power gets to decide that. And obviously she didn't particularly care for that rebuttal. And I wasn't trying to be mean to her, but this is what, when we start saying, when we're answering skeptics, Part of answering skeptics is figuring out the question behind the question or whatever else and is trying to start poking holes and in, in weak worldview arguments. And postmodern thought when it comes to morality is really, really weak in my opinion. I think, I think the idea of the existence of morality and conscience and there being a moral lawgiver is one of the strongest arguments for the existence of God. And you need, but you need to be able to properly defend that and you need to be able to properly kind of push back lovingly when people hold to specifically, I mean, the most common thing you're going to come in, t- in contact with is a postmodern view of morality. You need to be ready to kind of push back on that and and, and ask some pointed questions in, in return to that. David, I think you've probably got some things too that you, that you would say are, are good evidences for the existence of God. Yeah, so I, I kind of focused on some of the popular like philosophical <laughs> arguments sure. that people have brought up throughout history. I, I think it was that you pointed out the reality that people have been thinking about this question far, far longer than, you know, 20 years ago, yeah. right? And I would say in some senses, they have been thinking about it in much deeper ways than, you know, I feel like our society nowadays is so, I, I would say the word is probably just busy, um, that the amount of time that an average person has to sit down and consider Hmm. Where where did we come from? It is is probably much less than it was, I don't know, 150 years ago, 200 years ago, um, or more. So I think you guys already highlighted two of the major arguments, which is the moral argument. Um, and then you you kind of hinted uh with creation at the argument of design. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really not gonna spend a whole whole lot of time on there because I think you guys unpacked those very well. Um, my only point bringing those up at the beginning is I want our listeners to to know and understand that Christian thinkers are not the only human beings who came to this rational conclusion yeah, on their absolutely. own. Yeah. There are philosophers throughout history who by, by their rational conclusion became theists but never became Christians or anything. Right. Like, like they were not Christians. They were not any other religion in the world, they were just like, by what I am seeing in the world, I am convinced there's something else. Now, I most became deists. Right. Yeah. And and, and so I, I wanted to, to at least bring that up because it can be very easy to be like, well, from your worldview, of course, it makes sense to come and, and look around for reasons to believe in this. It's like, no, there's a lot of philosophers that were not actually looking around for reasons to believe in God. They wanted to answer the question of, why do I see order and design in the world and expect that to be by chance? But when I see order and design anywhere else in my life, I expect there to be somebody behind that. Um, and so, again, more more aimed towards just the the mere question we're trying to answer, which is, is, is there a, basically a, a rational 
Is, is there evidence? Is there any reason for us to believe that there is a God? And I think both of those are, are probably some of the strongest arguments, if you ask me. Um, I have two more. One I think is very uh, a very good argument. Um, the other gets tossed around quite a bit, so I wanted to, to bring it up. Um, I don't necessarily think it's something we need to hang our hat. But again, I think once I'm done, my goal is not to say, hey, any of these arguments in and of their own solve all your questions, solve everything, but show us that humanity throughout the years and us in today's day and age can can logically and rationally come to the conclusion that the, the best answer to our question is that there is a God. Okay, and um, so so the, the the first argument is what's oftentimes called the cosmological argument, um, and the the let me explain the argument first, and then we can kind of talk about it. Um, so in essence, change is just the actualization of potential. Okay, so change, in other words, requires a changer. That I feel like we you hear that and you're like, yes, that makes sense. Um, so that any change is caused by something that is already actual. Um, there must be a first cause that can actualize the potential of other things to exist without having uh, to have its own existence actualized by anything, a.k.a. this is what many philosophers call the unmoved mover. So whatever else God is supposed to be, he is the ultimate case of things basically he is the ultimate initiator he he is that which does not need anything to be initiated right um and so this argument kind of flows from well what caused this this and then you kind of continue yeah i mean it's like that famous moment where like you're discussing with somebody the a cosmological argument or an argument from creation they're like well who created god and it's like well you know that's like that's the whole point that's right like that question you you're asking it because you don't get it. <laughs> right. It, that, that is actually the question that we're trying to answer. Right. It's like, if we believe everything was created by something, logically there had to have been something. If we believe there is, uh, especially if we believe there is a beginning of the universe, then we have to believe there has to be something outside of that. Right. And so all this argument really holds to it. You see, it's very general. It's whatever that is, Whatever said thing that was there before the universe began, that we would presume is God, right? It's not making any other judge or, or, or judgment. Now, I, I, will, I will clarify um, something about this argument. Um, this do, does not mean that God uh, made the first move and the dominoes like began to fall and continued on their own, um, but that instead, what, what this argument is claiming is that the existence of everything needs to be sustained by the existence of an unmoved mover. And I think that's a worthy distinction. I mean, it, one, because it's a much clearer and I would say stronger argument, but also, you know, if in our, in our position, um, when we go to scripture and to the Christian faith, we start to see why this argument is so compelling and and so um, because that's how god describes himself correct yeah i mean the language the scripture would use right is it would say it, this argument is basically saying the natural world cannot exist unless there is something a, a creator that is transcendent of the natural world right which is exactly what the bible teaches and so in in essence this this question or, or this argument um is is telling us that is that change is the only thing that requires a cause, right? And so this is, again, where your Bible is really, really helpful because God doesn't change, right? Therefore, he does, yeah. he does not need a cause. So, again, another, another argument where you can – I'm not saying this has to be the argument that you hear and you say, oh, my gosh, I got to go to church tomorrow. But it at least depicts somebody took time to think through why or 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 what was the initiating cause of the universe and rationally it makes sense that that other other thing that unmoved mover could indeed be god rationally right um so that's a big argument i talked about moral i talked about the argument from design um another argument that gets 
thrown around is uh, Pascal's uh, reasonability of uh, basically basically Pascal's argument is if what are what are the pros and the cons in this in the simplest in Pascal's the simplest wager sense is right what it's called yeah um, you know if if we believe that God exists and everything that is tied to that there is obviously positive connotations there and negative connotations to not believing. Whereas if you end up not believing that everything is just by chance, then there's really no negative. There's there's no negative to believing in God. So you might as well believe in God. Now, again, I don't necessarily think this is the strongest argument, um, I I guess, in the convincing department. But I, I do think, again, it bodes to answer our question, which is, can someone thinking about life and whether God is real or not reach this as a logical, coherent conclusion? And I think the answer is yes. I mean, we we take this form of logic and thinking in many of our other decisions in in life. So I thought it was worth um, bringing, bringing up. And I, I think we're, based, based on time, um, those are kind of the the, the biggest ones um, I wanted to discuss. I know we were going to you can you can go ahead with this one because okay. we'll, we'll we'll just do this question today. because because we'll the, the, our our transition was you know I I think there is I think we all are going to agree obviously I hope our listeners also agree um, that that there is rational reasons for someone to conclude that God exists yeah. right um, but I think. Maybe the one of the questions behind this question um, when posed to Christians is, you know, trying to really get at, well, like, why should I believe that your God exists, right? Which is not the question we're, we're trying to answer. But again, I think in the same way when we're trying to answer that, a lot of the same steps that we've taken today in this episode would be helpful, right? Like the realization that, that there isn't like like Christianity, for example, which which we're all Christians, so that's obviously the example we're going to use, is built or or it's it's sustained around a historic event, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm. Paul in Corinthians tells us like if if Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, like this is all dumb and we should all mm-hmm. just do whatever we want. Yep. That's my translation. I'm paraphrasing. Right. Um, that's not ESV, but the point, the point I'm trying to make is the, the answers that we're giving in these episodes, I, I hope are helpful, but the methodology and the way we're thinking through these things are really the big takeaways, right? Because the question is not going to be worded the, like, like all of the questions will not be worded the exact same way and they will not be aimed in the exact same manner. So I, I think the the method of well what you know what does scripture, what have other individuals throughout history thought on these matters, whether it's about morality, about um the organization of um creation or even the 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 change that that we see um in the world. Like who who's behind that? I think all of those um examples or, or I would say proofs or arguments, whatever, whatever you want to call them, um, show us kind of a methodology of thinking through these questions that is probably far more helpful than just the bare answers that we're giving. Mm, yeah. So um, with that, I feel like, you know, we've processed through the question and a lot of perspectives on it. Um, there are way more than that, by the mm-hmm. way. Right. Oh, yeah. The, the, yeah. Those are like you know, the appetizer to what could be a seven course meal mm-hmm. yeah. on just answering that question. Right. I mean, we could have, as David said, it uh, before we started this episode, probably gone on for like seven hours uh, on each question we're going to talk about. And, you know, our hope is to give you a, a lot of good starting points and maybe some things to talk about with, you know, your neighbor and, and just people around you. So, um, and, and we've even started, you know, talked a little bit about it, but just some of like the questions behind the questions. And I feel like that does bring up, you know, like 
at the end of the day, we're not just asking this big question and we're going to focus on it, but understand that there might be some reasons behind it. Um, you know, do you think there are potential questions really being asked behind this question when people ask it? Yeah. And again, I, I've got a ton of assumptions, but this, a lot of these assumptions come from my interactions with the the human race. Right. <laughs> um, it is possible that someone is asking this question because they're unsure and they're genuinely curious as to whether there's any convincing evidence for the existence of God. It is possible. I, however, would imagine most of the time when this question is asked, it's not asked in good faith. At least in my experience, most of the time it is not. Um, it is also my experience that most of the time, the experience of those that, have, that, that asked me this question or I witnessed them ask others this question, are, they are not used to being responded to by someone that actually does have these answers that, or does have reasonable answers to their questions. I think that the reason, at least in my experience, so we're, we're moving from, we're moving from, scientifically verifiable argumentation, observable empirical data at this point, and just talking about Kevin's own experience and, and having conversations with people. Mm-hmm. It is my experience that most of the time people don't, that most of the time people ask this question because they don't want God to exist. Mm-hmm. Not because they even necessarily deeply have considered the question and, and have gone through the cosmological argument or the teleological argument or whatever, you know, Pascal's wager or whatever it may be and thought of good, strong philosophical rebuttals backed by history, other philosophers, sociology, anthropology. Most of the time they're asking that question because they don't want God to exist. Yeah, and I think this brings it back to, you know, something we talked about in our first episode, but like behind every question is a person, and there is a heart there with like emotions and feelings towards their experiences in life that bring them to be processing through this question and asking this for a lot of those reasons you just stated. Yeah. And I would say Paul kind of hints at this in Romans one, right? He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So he says from a starting foundational point, the wrath of God is pointed towards human beings. Well, let's just be honest. That sucks. (laughs) right yep yes (laughs) that is not good so it is not it's not even shocking to me that someone that doesn't believe god and doesn't and and someone that doesn't want to follow god's way would want to disprove his existence because otherwise if he's real what is pointed at them the wrath of god Mm. but paul goes on to say for what can be known about god is plain to them because god has shown it to them for his invisible attributes. So here he goes, right? He says, hey, look, like I get it. God is invisible. Namely, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So he's like, there's his creation argument, right? And then look what he says. For all they knew, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile, that's rough, and they're thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So he gives an argument on why someone would even ask this question in the first place. He's like, they pushed back against God. They didn't want to follow him. They wanted to follow their own way. They wanted to worship worship themselves. And in that, they became futile or stupid in their thinking, and their hearts were so foolish that they were darkened, and they actually started to believe that they were right, even though it was clearly in front of them that God existed. Then look what he says. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now, again, he's talking about the entire human race here. He's not talking about non-believers. He's talking about the human race saying Mm. human beings really thought that they were something else and they're actually fools. Then he says, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. He's like, so this is how stupid mankind is. They had the God of the universe to interact with and experience and know. And instead they're like, actually, I think I like that bird more. 
ah, you know what? Like, giraffes are cooler than God. I mean, and look, giraffes are cool. Don't get me wrong. Pretty cool animals. But come on, right? And then he says this, therefore, and this is another key part to think about this. God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Then this part, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one, for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree— that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so to answer your question, right, of like why someone would ask that, because they've been given over to themselves. Mm. And the thought that they're wrong and evil and that the wrath of God is pointed towards them is so unthinkable and unimaginable that the, the, def- the defense for that Instead of listening to what God says about that and the beauty of what Christ has done to liberate and free broken and sinful humanity and the body and blood of Jesus Christ given and resurrected for us, they would rather say, I think God doesn't exist and let me see if I can create an argument against it. Yeah, and and I think it's really, really important to go through that because it does, you know— really help us identify and focus in these conversations what we are— ultimately pushing against as we talk about this and know like there's some really like ingrained stuff in there that people are dealing with or holding on to that is going to you know as the passage says even push them away from logical thinking for the sake of holding on to those right i mean paul says that they were given up to a debased mind they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness that they were consumed with passion, that they were given over to their passions, right? Basically what Paul is saying is because mankind has rejected the existence of God and rejected his authority and worshiping him as he's seen fit, right? Mankind has now been given over to their own futility, that that they're actually enslaved to it. Mm -hmm. And part of this slavery would mean asking a question when it seems like, hey, like it's fairly reasonable if we just are honest philosophically and intellectually that God could exist. We're not even saying the God of the Bible or whatever else. And obviously we're using arguments from scripture here to talk about, mm-hmm. right, why mankind would get into this place because we're Christians and this we think that Christianity also describes the human condition perfectly. But there's a massive pushback to the existence of God, not because at face value, there's anything wrong with the existence of God, but the implications of God existing are very, very troublesome for mankind. Agreed. I'm not going to add much to that because <laughs> that that was good. And I think, fr- I mean, frankly, that's probably the most common uh, place that this question comes from. Um I'm I'm not really going to argue the opposite. Um, I I will say that there there might be, especially if you're, you know, maybe you're listening and you're just very inquisitive. And and I, I thought of two kind of two common places where someone could be asking this question. And I would say a more genuine, although I wouldn't say that that's any less genuine. I would just say that that is much more, um, a much a much more probably a less productive place to ask that question from than, than the two places that I'm going to 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 discuss. Um, but I, I think of maybe individuals who grew up in either a home or a country or a town where religion was just 
not talked about because that's an irrational thing to hold. So just ignore it. And you, it, it was just never, they were never exposed to even thinking about this question because why would you think about it? It's irrational. It doesn't make any sense. And maybe is now being introduced to just either the proponent of God existing or even like Christianity. And they're like, well, I don't even, I don't even think God exists much less that your God exists. So if I think, I think having someone who's asking the question from that position um, could be, could be a, a, a plausible um, place. And then the, the other option is maybe the other extreme where you grew up in a very, religious home where asking questions like can we rationally make a case that god exists that was discouraged like yeah oh no like you don't need to think about it it's just it's i tell it you is. it's true and it's true and let's move on yeah. um you know where, where i think like those two extreme I, I would say those are probably like very niche extremes but i think a little bit more generally are quite common where you're either insulated in your thought one way or the other, where you just are, are, are so opposed to God in your upbringing that you're like, there's no even rational thought behind that. Or in the other extreme where you're like, you're so insulated in your religious thought where you're like, it's wrong for me to even rationally think. And obviously I think if you read the Bible, you'll see that that's, not only demanded, but is it is used by the authors of, of Scripture to to convey truth and the reality of God to us. So, um, you know, I think this goes this this brings us real real well back to that initial episode where kind of you're going to have to use a lot of wisdom prayer to diagnose exactly where the person in front of you is coming from. You know, is it, it, what what is the actual question behind this question um and so yeah i i think we shouldn't we shouldn't take that privilege lightly yeah absolutely yeah and you know as we've talked uh, about does god exist we we've hit on it very generally as you know we said we wanted to uh and we've even talked specifically about christianity and you know yahweh as you know, who we believe in is Jesus. Um, and I just really wanted to quickly just give that perspective in what we believe and what we've come to find to believe through scripture and just through the beauty of, you know, what in our opinion creation cries out to um, just that we believe God created the world. He made it perfect uh, that we were supposed to be in communion in connection with God. And then through the fall uh that connection was broken because of the corruption of sin. And by that corruption, uh, you know, no matter what we try, uh, as good as we may try to be, we are never perfect and we always fall short. And as much as we want to or not want to, uh, we are disconnected from God and there's literally no hope. But God, being rich in mercy, great line right there from Ephesians 2, mm -hmm. love. If you just want the gospel, read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Um but with that, in his mercy, he, when there was no way, made a way by coming as Christ or uh, by sending his son, Christ, uh, fully God and fully man to uh, live a perfect life and not um, necessarily make a new path as much as to pay the price that we were required in the penalty of sin. Um, and then provided a way to be reconnected to God as we were intended so that we could live in the hope and promises with a future to come and in the present now of just the glorious riches by transferring our trust to Christ to find hope in him. And I think we find a lot of beauty in that and a lot of hope in that as we wrestle with this question, you know, uh, is there uh, convincing evidence for the existence of God, which really pushes us to the question of who that God is. And so we've come to believe and understand. And this is where like, there is an element of faith in that. Like there will never be definitive answers for these questions. And we have faith and we've seen time and time again in our lives. And we'd love to share those with you. If you have questions about seeing that play out, uh, through the struggles and strains of life, cause life is not a, uh, walk in the park. No. Um, and finding hope in God, in Christ through those moments. 
Um, so as we wrap up this question, um, I just want to encourage you guys, like one of the main ideas is that we wrestle through these questions and we encourage you don't just assume something is right, but wrestle through it, think through it and process through it and come to logical conclusions through your thought. And hopefully these things were helpful for you, for yourself, as well as, as you speak with others. And we just want to encourage you guys as you uh, go out this week to just go, or well, I'm, I'm not going to do that yet. Cause I realize I'm going to say a few other things. Sorry. That was so close. Uh, <laughs> I know Kevin and David are laughing at me. Uh, Cause I do want to say that if you do have further questions, like I said earlier, you feel free to email us at podcast at alethegainswell.com. We love to communicate with you guys. We love to hear from you and we would love to respond to any questions or clarifications you have. Uh, Maybe you have questions that will go into more in a later episode and we'd love to hear from you guys Um, as well. Be sure to like, subscribe, follow, do those things that people do. Uh, And if this encouraged you, uh, share it with someone else so that they can be encouraged by it as well. Um, With that now, uh, thank you all for listening. We look forward to our next talk. Uh, We'll have an interview and it will be lovely and wonderful and With that, go and be the church. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Um, So I I do encourage you to interject with each other. Uh, Do you guys want to have like a signal to yourself? Because Kevin, I know you like to talk and David, you also like to talk. Maybe just to say, you know, like put up a finger or something. Like I have something to say. I would like David to do this. I would not like him to <laughs> bang on the table. Dang it. I actually kind of like that. <laughs> no, I kind of feel like we're going to be able to just read each other. And I can just kick him straight on the table. Yeah. Except, you guys can play except I'm sitting Indian style on the thing. <laughs> yeah, no, you guys just play footsie and that'll be your signal to talk to each other. I think that's perfect. 